In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady of Fatima. St. Louis Marie de Montfort. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. When one thinks of Our Lady of Fatima and the events that unfolded over those several months in 1917 and then following in the life of Sister Lucia, there are a number of associations that automatically come to mind. There's the miracle of the sun. There are the three shepherd children. There are the visions and the warnings. There is that great title, Our Lady introducing herself as Our Lady of the Rosary. And then there's an expression that is commonly used and associated with Fatima, and rightly so, but not so well understood, and that is Our Lady's Immaculate Heart. And it then seems wise to pause today and reflect on this central element where Our Lady spoke of consecration to her Immaculate Heart. And on the one hand, these are common Christian words, these are common Catholic expressions, and yet on the other hand, it begs the question of what exactly are we speaking about when we speak of Our Lady's Immaculate Heart? And there are two related ways of engaging that mystery, in part determined by the way the heart of Our Lady is pictured. There is one way that shows the heart of Our Lady ringed with white roses, burning on fire, and pierced by a sword. But that is an image of the sorrowful and immaculate heart of Mary. If we take the sword out of the image, we have the image of the Immaculate Heart. And it is worth doing that today, not because Our Lady's sufferings and Our Lady's sorrows are not important, but only for the sake of the clarity of just what are we speaking about when we speak of her Immaculate Heart. And for many of us, we associate this expression, the Immaculate Heart of Mary, with Our Lady's words at Fatima. But this was a devotion that was in the church for several hundred years before Our Lady visited the shepherd children. In fact, the great promoter and the original promoter of devotion to the Immaculate Heart of Mary was St. John Eudes, who lived and preached in France in the 1600s. The very first to compose a mass in honor of the Immaculate Heart of our Blessed Lady. And out of John Eudes's work and preaching and mission, a number of customs came into being, including a first Saturday devotion, which was also old before Our Lady appeared at Fatima. But it was a different kind of first Saturday devotion. It wasn't five first Saturdays, which is unique to Fatima. It was all of the first Saturdays. 12 of them. And the idea being this, if Saturday is that great day of the week, most especially dedicated to Our Lady, in order to make 
the observance of Saturday accessible to the faithful and to do it with a certain intensity, the custom came into the church to choose the first Saturday of the month as a day of offering particular vigor in our honor of Our Lady. And the idea was just as there are 12 months in the year and Our Lady has a crown of 12 stars, those first Saturdays were understood as a devotional crown in honor of the heart of our Blessed Lady. Note how wonderful that is, to crown the year one star every month on a Saturday in honor of Our Lady and the greatness of her heart. The messages at Fatima added something to that, giving it a particular sharpness over five, a rosary's worth of Saturdays of reparation to the outrages against her heart. But again, it begs the question of what are we speaking about when we speak of Our Lady's heart? And since my favorite subject in school was show and tell, that's where we're going to start. It has been a delight over this last year to install these two beautiful new windows of the heart of our Lord and the heart of his mother. And this image of the Immaculate Heart of Our Lady has much to teach us if we simply engage the symbolism. Quite obviously, it is a heart surmounted by flames and circled by white roses. And every one of these elements of the picture has a deep and profound set of meanings to it. Let's start with the fire. One of the ancient ways of understanding Our Lady in the Christian tradition was that Our Lady, who bears the divine word within her, could be understood to be something like the burning bush that Moses encountered. The law of Moses, seeing the bush on fire and not being consumed, and then hearing God calling to him from out of the bush out of the fire. Moses, Moses. And in meditating on this, the early fathers of the church saw in it a prefiguration of the Word made flesh, truly present, the divine fire of the Lord in Mary, and yet she is not consumed. She is not burned away. She is gloriously who she is, and yet the warmth and the light and the presence of God speak out through her to the world. And note how marvelously that captures something of the very essence of the holiness of Our Lady. Because as Moses draws near the burning bush, what does the Lord say? Remove your shoes for where you are standing is holy ground. And we see then that the church has long understood Our Lady as that truly holy ground where one can meet the Lord. Holy ground, not like any other kind of earthly ground, but something different. Present on earth, but consecrated, set aside, claimed by and for God. And that captures the next great image of flame from the biblical tradition, and it's related to the burning bush. 
The holiness of God is that which casts out all sin. Sin cannot abide in the presence of the holiness of God. Note, the Lord has come to save sinners, but he does so by freeing them from the sin that clings to them. And so the presence of the Lord and the love of the Lord is understood as something like a refiner's fire that which burns away the impurities from the metal. And yet Our Lady, the sinless virgin, is that one from whom all impurity has been burned away even before she was born. And note, it's not simply an image of Our Lady being purified in her immaculate conception. It's an image of a heart so on fire with love for God it allows no impurity to enter, no impurity to reside. It burns so brightly and with a heat so great, it does not consume her, but it allows no approach of wickedness into that chamber. What a marvelous, what a marvelous image then, this heart so on fire, so ablaze with love for God, that that very love is purifying, that very love is refining. And this heart, so completely refined, becomes the sign of our hearts, called likewise, imperfect as they are, to become holy ground where the Lord can be found and encountered. But what a remarkably beautiful image, the heart ablaze and yet never consumed, like the bush. The heart ablaze with a fire that purifies because it is the fire of purity. And having said that then, consider the very essence of a furnace which is as a vessel bearing heat. And why? To warm that which is outside of it. And so again, this immaculate heart of the Virgin, this burning heart in its own way, sheds light and warmth to those who approach it. Consecrate yourselves to my immaculate heart, Our Lady says. And note what she says. Give yourselves to this heart which always burns and is never consumed. Give yourselves into this heart where your sins can be melted away. Give yourselves to this heart which can warm you, because the warmth of divine love is found here. But why would this heart be aflame like this? Because of the presence of the Lord, which leads us then to the physical character of the heart itself. And note, simply, obviously in the image, the heart occupies space, doesn't it? Good, because the heart is also a vessel. The heart is also a container. The heart, in fact, is a treasure house. And the heart of Our Lady is the great treasury of God Himself. This pure heart, this sinless heart, this immaculate heart, is the spotless place where the greatest treasure in heaven can be kept and not sullied, not diminished, 
not made anything less, not be soiled. And think about that for a moment. If one is going to set aside a treasure, one wants a secure space, but one also wants a clean space, a space that will honor and dignify what is placed within it. And Our Lady's heart is exactly that treasury. It is the treasure house of the Almighty. Because Almighty God places the greatest treasure of the universe in Mary, and that would be his son. As St. Augustine so beautifully said, Our Lady conceived our Lord in her heart before she conceived him in her womb. And so note, this is the abode of all the graces of God. This is the abode of all the blessings of God. This is the abode of salvation and mercy because it is the abode of Jesus Christ. What a remarkably, what a remarkably beautiful image that is. This heart, which is the treasury of God himself. But in addition to that, as sacred scripture says, when Gabriel greets Our Lady, he names her full of grace. And we have to understand in that moment, he is not describing her, he is naming her. This is who she is in God's eyes. That is her name in heaven, full of grace. It is echoed in her name, Mary, Maria, which literally in Latin means seas, oceans in the plural. This a woman who is the ocean of grace, the abyss of grace, filled with grace, and if something is full, by definition, is there room for anything else? No. Think about that for a minute. To have a heart so filled with grace, there's room for nothing less. There is only grace. There is only goodness. There is only divine favor in this heart. And that should not surprise us because if you were building a house for yourself, would you build it in a way that pleased you or in a way that didn't please you? In a way that pleases you, right? And when you are filling and furnishing your house, what would you put there? That which pleases you or that which displeases you? And if we could have our way, it would only be what pleases us, regardless of how we have to negotiate that in our families. Well, consider that. If the Lord is building himself a house, he will build that house in the way that is most pleasing to him. And he will fill that house where he will abide with what is pleasing to him and not with anything less, not with anything else. And so this heart, this treasury of grace and blessing is the place where all that is pleasing to God and all that is most pleasing to God is found. Because that is where he will rest, where he will dwell where he will be among us, full of grace. How much we've said already about this heart. And note, if the heart is filled with grace, there is no space for selfishness. If the heart is filled with grace, 
There is no space for arrogance. If the heart is full of grace, there is no space for lying. If the heart is filled with grace, there is no room for fear. If the heart is filled with grace, there is no room for pettiness. How marvelous that is. But if the heart is filled with grace, it must be filled with humility. It must be filled with generosity. It must be filled with wisdom. It must be filled with patience and peacefulness. It must be filled with a certain holy boldness. And so she is also the treasure house of virtue. The treasure house of all that it is that makes a human being truly in the image and likeness of God. Note how wonderful this is, how absolutely remarkable. And it is over this heart, this ocean of grace, that the Holy Spirit will move in the fullness of time, that same Spirit who moved over the abyss of the waters at the very beginning, not to create the world a second time, but to create the new Adam in this heart. What a remarkably beautiful thing this is. This heart, the treasury of the Lord, the abode of the Lord, the space where God comes among us, that holy ground marked by the blazing fire of divine love that burns ever brightly and never consumes. This heart ringed with flowers, as if it were a garden. The heart of Our Lady, the immaculate heart of Our Lady, is the fulfillment of that immaculate virginal soil of the original Eden, from which the original Adam was taken and built and formed. Note how wonderful this is from the soil of this pure heart, this virginal heart, the new Adam is made. And note how wonderful it was. When the original Adam was made, he was settled into a garden. And Our Lady has long been called the secret, the hidden, the enclosed garden of Almighty God. That new paradise where in his incarnation, Jesus unites the divine and the human, and God walks again with man in Mary, the new garden of Eden. And we see in this heart of Our Lady, this immaculate heart, this pure heart adorned with the flowers of all the great virtues and all the small virtues, this new heart where all of the goodness that God has to give the world is found this new heart where the new Adam takes his rest, we see in this heart the renewal of the world. And note how it is in this heart, in her immaculate conception, made new in the world, to be the garden of God's delight, the immaculate heart, the new creation begins. The new creation where the new Adam will be found and from which he will come to save the old and gather it into his kingdom. The immaculate heart 
of Mary. So much from a little picture. So much from a simple, simple image. And yet within that simplicity is the distillation of hundreds and hundreds of years of prayer. Hundreds and hundreds of years of reflection on who Our Lady is. And yet we are still not dumb because it is not enough to say that her heart is like a garden. It is also ringed with roses. And the rose is, the poets have long said, the queen of flowers. Not because the rose has any particular authority over the other flowers. But because in the eye of the poet, the rose most perfectly captures the very essence of what it is to be a flower. In its scent, in its form and its shape, in its color, and in its beauty. It shines forth as the best and the greatest example of what a flower should be. Note the implication there. As the ancient church would say to of Our Lady, she is our tainted nature's solitary boast. She's the one thing we can brag about. She, we, sin-fallen man and woman, we can't really brag about ourselves. Oh, but we can brag about her. Because she is the very best and the very essence of the very best of what it is to be human. And so note, it is not some other flower, it is the rose. Because she is that one who, in being sinless, in being filled with grace, is also that one who is all beautiful. There is no stain in her. There is no diminishment of what it is to be human in her. She in herself is the very best of all that we are. Note how wonderful that is, because it is a reminder that in this sin-fallen and disobedient world, the Lord God himself in his goodness made it possible for humanity to say yes again. In her and through her. But note, it's also a reminder that as we look at her, we see what we should have been in the first place and what the grace of God can move us toward becoming. But the rose, the rose that rings the heart of Mary is very different than the crown of thorns that rings the sacred heart of the Lord because the roses that ring the heart of Mary have no thorns. And Our Lady has long been called by the church the rose without thorns. And note what that says. It is the rose that can be held with no danger to the one who grabs it. It is the rose that inflicts no pain. It is the rose that does no damage. It is the rose whose goodness is gentle and complete and perfect and readily available. One handles it with care because it is beautiful and good, but not because one is afraid of being cut, because one is afraid of being pricked. It is that rose against whom the Lord can rest his head and not be pierced. What a marvelous image that is.
this image, the rose, beautiful and without the thorn. The very essence of what it is. We, on the other hand, on our best days might be roses, but man, we got our thorns. <laughs> um, but how wonderful that is. The rose without thorns. The enclosed and hidden garden of God and the roses are white, not red. The roses are white because she is the pure virgin. She is the holy virgin. And let's pause for a minute on that idea, the white of the purity of those roses, because it says something important about the heart. We sometimes stop a little short when we discuss the virtue of purity. And what we say is good and correct, but it often doesn't go far enough. Okay. Normally, we often speak about purity in terms of cleanliness. She is unstained and therefore pure. She is unsoiled and therefore pure. She is unspoiled and therefore pure. And that is all true. But purity has another notion to it besides this idea of cleanliness, this idea of being stained or unstained spoiled or unspoiled. Think of it this way. If I have pure gold, do you expect there to be anything other than gold there? No, right? Otherwise, I'm cheating you or I've been cheated. No. So if I say it is pure gold, what am I saying? It better only be gold. It should only be one thing. If I have pure water, by definition, it's not flavored water. By definition, it's not water mixed with something else. By definition, it's not dirty water. It's only water. It's one thing. Note the implication. One of the essential notions of being pure is to be undivided, is to be one thing. The purity of Our Lady is not simply that she's not stained by sin, it's that she's not divided by sin. Think of your own heart and think of those times even when you say yes to God or yes to somebody else, there's that little bit of maybe that's there those times where I'm generous, but I'm also holding back. I'm yes with a mixing a no in there. And notice how my heart is. On any given day, even when I'm trying my hardest, there's still a certain reluctance to be good that's there. There's still a certain resistance to change that's there. I'm not quite one thing. And so my word to God, even when it's yes, is usually yes when I get around to it. Or yes after I get these other things taken care of. Or yes, but let me do it my way. Or yes, but what do I get out of it? Notice how our hearts work. 
we have that spirit of St. Augustine in us, which turns to the Lord and says, Claim me, Lord, convert me, Lord, make me yours, O Lord, tomorrow. Because I'm good today. You know, we turn to the Lord and say, free me from my sins, but save this one for last because I like it. We, we do that. And so the purity of Our Lady, we have to understand it's something more vital than merely a static kind of cleanliness. She's never anything but yes to God. There's no maybe in Mary. There's no no to the Lord and Mary. There is only yes. You know, the theologians have long said that Almighty God the Father only has one word, and that's Jesus. You can make a case that Our Lady only has one word too, and it's yes. Her heart is undivided. Her heart is not divided between this world and heaven. Her heart is not divided between her loyalty to her family, her nation, herself, and her belonging to the Lord. In fact, all of those things, she lives and engages perfectly because her heart belongs to no one except the Lord. And she allows the Lord to direct the way she gives her heart and moves her heart. And so she moves... On the one hand, according to her own will, but her own will is so perfectly surrendered to God, she moves it according to His. Note how wonderful that is. She is one in her heart, not many. Her heart is one thing, not two things. And so she belongs to the Lord in a way that gives her a certain oneness with him, a certain inseparability from him, which is why St. Louis de Montfort boldly asserts it would be easier to separate light from the sun. Go ahead and try that. It would be easier to separate light from the sun than Jesus from Mary and Mary from Jesus. What a remarkably powerful statement that is. But now, having reflected briefly on these few elements, notice then what Our Lady is inviting us into when she speaks about devotion to her Immaculate Heart, when she speaks about consecration, meaning belonging, to and in her immaculate heart. This is not merely something saying the world is a dangerous place, come to me. This is saying if you would know the beauty of the kingdom of God, likewise, turn to me. Likewise, turn to me. And so the spiritual masters across the centuries in speaking of Our Lady and in speaking of this beautiful, wonderful mystery of her heart, when say, it is not only the place where man walks again with God because of the incarnation of the Lord, but where we can do likewise. 
It is that enclosed garden of God which he is willing to open to those whom he calls, that they might likewise take their rest there and find shelter there and rest against that rose that does not prick, that rose that does not cut, to breathe deeply the pure and the free air of holiness and goodness so that we might be renewed. What a marvelous, what a marvelous invitation that is. Especially because all too often we spend our days without necessarily ever explicitly saying it, consecrating ourselves to the black and wounded heart of this sin-fallen world. And we rest our heads against the thorn bushes of its anxiety. We drink from the wells of its polluted water. We breathe in the polluted air of its vices. We surround ourselves with it, often without realizing it. And note then, there's an invitation here. Step away from that. Don't dig for yourselves broken wells that cannot satisfy your thirst. Come here and drink deeply because here is also where you can walk with him who is your Lord and who is your Savior. And you can do so in safety and you can do so in goodness. What a remarkably beautiful invitation that is. And so it is that the heart of Our Lady, which invites us, invites us into something absolutely wonderful because it is from this heart that one finds the origin of all Christian music. And I can't say that strongly enough. The very first hymn celebrating the presence of Jesus Christ in the world rises out of Our Lady's heart and from her lips on the occasion of her visit to the house of her cousin, St. Elizabeth. Before the angels sing from heaven the birth of the Savior, she's already sung. Before Zachary sings his canticle at the birth of John the Baptist, She's already sung. Before Simeon sings his, Now, O Lord, dismiss your servant in peace, she has already sung. Before any Christian author has picked up his instrument, she has already sung. The origin of all praise of Jesus Christ in song has a name, and her name is Mary. And it rises first from that heart. And that is only right because it is this heart that is the first to love Jesus Christ. Before any other heart has loved him, her heart has been filled with him. It is that heart which is the first heart to know and honor the name of Jesus. Think of this for a moment. Across the long centuries of salvation history, when Israel is waiting for its Savior, 
they didn't even know the name of the one they were waiting for. The world waited for a savior that it didn't know. And it wasn't until Gabriel says to Mary, you shall conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall name him Jesus. It wasn't until that moment that the world knew the name of its savior. And it only knew the name of the savior because Mary knew it. And so note, so great and sacred is that name that the Lord confided it first to the heart of Mary. And from that heart, gave it to the world. And the world receives the name from her heart. Notice how wonderful that is. The angels don't sing the name Jesus from the heavens when he's born. The name has been given to her. And through her and from her, the name is given to us. And so even our stammering of the name of Jesus comes from that heart. Notice how wonderful this is. This heart filled with grace and blessing, which overflows into our own lives. And so this call to be consecrated to her immaculate heart, note how it involves a coming to the source of all things. It involves coming to the way that God gives himself to us and God is pleased to dwell among us. This heart out of which arises the great song of praise. And notice what that heart sings. It begins very simply. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. What does your soul proclaim? Don't call out an answer, it's not confession. (laughs) But notice, notice, if we just stop with that simple statement, what does my soul proclaim? Does the very essence of my being proclaim the greatness of God? Or do I proclaim the smallness and the pettiness of myself? Do I proclaim the mediocrity of my goodness? This is not to make us feel bad. It's simply just to catch the magnitude, the enormity of this statement. My spirit rejoices, finds its joy in God my Savior. And so this is the heart that is ever joyful. Even in its woundedness, there's a certain joyfulness. But why? Why does it do these things? Because he has looked upon me in my lowliness. Think about that for a second. Because this is the cry of the humble heart. And the immaculate heart is and must be, by definition, the humble heart. In fact, the most humble of all hearts. She who is better than all of us is more humble than any of us. She who is greater than all of us sees herself as the smallest before the Lord. And why? Because she sees how great he is. She sees his greatness 
and in seeing how great he is, she bows low before it. Humility is not self-debasement. Humility is honestly knowing who I am before the Lord, which means I also honestly know his greatness. And in these few words, we see here the anticipatory note of that fundamental spiritual law that Jesus Christ will quote in the Gospels. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. The one who exalts himself will be brought low. And so note, she is pleased to be in the low position. She is pleased to be in the small position. As long as she can look up and see the great one. And when she looks up, she who is low is pleased to discover he's already been looking at her. That's the other marvelous thing. In the world in which we live, the great don't notice the lowly. The mighty pay little attention to the weak. All too many of us know the painful experience of living lives that seem completely unimportant to those who are around us and to the world around us. And so note the marvelous reality here. The very one who made heaven and earth who is greater than all of those others sees me in my smallness. The people of my hometown don't see me. The rulers of this area do not see me. Caesar on his throne so far away doesn't even think of me or those like me. And yet he does. He does. And as she speaks this way, she speaks not just for herself. She speaks for the entire people of God. And this is where her hymn begins to change. Oh, she'll sing of the mighty things that God has done for her. But the reality is right here, she is beginning to speak as the fulfillment of all of Israel's hope. Because we hear God speaking through Moses. It's not because you were the greatest of all people that I set my eyes on you. It was not because you were the mightiest or the most important that I loved you. For in all truth, you, in fact, are the least of all peoples. And it's because of that I set my heart on you. Notice how it's echoed and brought to a beautiful and glorious fulfillment in what she says, this prayer of her heart. Where now we see that rising from her heart is the perfection of the heart of Israel itself. Marveling that the God and Lord of heaven and earth has set his eyes on us. And so when she says, he has done great things for me, she is speaking not just as Mary. She's speaking for all of us. She's speaking for the entire people of God, that lowly people of slaves for whom the God split the Red Sea, that lowly people of slaves that the Lord set his heart on and rescued and brought from slavery into freedom. The great things he has done for them, oh, he's done them for me, and he's done more. 
Because as her hymn continues, it doesn't become a merely personal statement. She begins to name more absolute realities. He has brought the lowly up and cast the mighty down. He has filled the hungry and sent the rich away. And note what she's saying. What's going on in me involves the Lord doing all of this for more than me. How absolutely wonderful. And so again, this heart sings of the way that what it celebrates, what it loves, who it celebrates, and who it loves is not her private blessedness, but rather is something that spills out for the good of the entire world. What a marvelous, marvelous reality this is. And so it is this heart which is the great model and engine of prayer. This heart which is the model of receiving and understanding and retaining the word. Because again, coming back to the idea of the heart as a place and a treasury, what does scripture insist on? And Mary treasured all of these things in her heart. And what does that really mean? It means no detail of the life of her son is allowed to be lost or forgotten or unappreciated. They are all there and not held in storage, but remembered and loved and reflected upon. Because she understands to truly know him is to keep receiving him. To truly hear him is to keep listening to him. To truly belong to him is to treasure him in a way that never stops valuing him. Consecrate yourselves, she says, to my immaculate heart. Small wonder she would invite us to so great a thing. Amen. <laughs>